Good afternoon, great to see you all here at EU's public meeting. We're going to be continuing today, as Ryan mentioned, our stroll through John's Gospel. We're going to be starting at John chapter 6. Before we get into that, let me lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for every opportunity that you give us to meet together around your word, to hear you speak. We pray that as we do that today, you would indeed speak to us as you've promised, by your word and through your spirit, that we might know you more, love you better, and serve you with everything that you so graciously give us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bulletin magazine recently ran an article on the 125 moments that defined Australia. 125 moments. The 125 events covered everything from the breakup of Gondwana land, the great sort of geographical mass from which all the continents of the globe supposedly came uh, millions of years ago, right all the way through to the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. Well, I wonder what you think have been the defining moments in this country's history over, say, the course of your lifetime, or let's just say the last 21 years. They listed 12 events of the last 21 years that they reckoned defined this country. I wonder if you could guess what they are. Let me run you through the 12. I'll do it in reverse chronological order. They started, so Boxing Day Tsunami, 2004, the Bali bombings of 2002, the Tampa Crisis of 2001, the Sydney Olympics of 2000, sending troops to East Timor in 99. Now we might be getting back to stuff that you can't remember so distinctly, but sort of you probably know about. The Port Arthur Massacre of 96. The Marbo High Court decision of 92. The start of privatisation in 1990. The Bicentenary of 88. The Grim Reaper ads publicising HIV in 87. Uluru handed back to traditional owners in 85. And the event that kicked it all off in 1985... 21 years ago, that defines our nation, the start of Neighbours. Yes, the TV show that defines our country. Neighbours. Mm. If there was one event that defined God's people, the Israelites, up until the coming of Jesus, it was the event that was known as the Exodus. There are lots of other key moments that were significant in Israel's history and particularly you might pick when the Lord first chose and called Abram, who was the forefather of the entire Israelite nation. That was the great founding moment in Israel's history. But really the moment that defined Israel's nationhood, the moment that for centuries to come they would look back upon as the wonderful identity-defining event was the Exodus. It was the time in their history when the Lord God wrested them out as a nation out of slavery in Egypt. It was a great and a gracious deliverance that brought them into being as a nation. It was a dynamic outworking of the covenant relationship they had with the Lord God. Now, why have I started today talking about this exodus when we're meant to be looking at the Gospel of John and the person of Jesus? Well, hand up if you're the sort of person who watches the special features on a DVD. Okay, we're a particular breed of people, right? We watch. I, I'm such an optimist. When I get a DVD out, of, you know, from the rental place, and I put it in. I look through all the special features 
thinking, this will be great. Of course, most of the time it's rubbish. But anyway, I've learnt some things from the behind-the-scenes features on DVDs. One of the things I've learnt is the way you shoot special effects. You might have seen it where the actor performs in front of a perfectly blank blue screen. And only later on, after the actor's performance has been recorded, do they then slot in the appropriate background. You know, that's where they put in the nuclear blast, the spaceship and the multi-headed alien wielding its weapon. That's the movie you're watching, right? No, okay. Well, the point is this. If you just watch the footage of the actor against the blue screen, you don't really know what's happening. You can see the main character, you can hear their words, you can see the action, but you don't really know what's going on. So you can imagine for a moment, there's the actor whirling both hands around above her head, she spins around, she thrusts them forward. What was she doing? Delivering that fatal blow to that dreadful alien with her laser weapon? Or was she just energetically preparing and presenting a cocktail? You know, shaken Not stirred. (laughs) You don't know. You need the background slotted in so you can make sense of what this person, the main character, is doing and saying. Well, that's something like the situation you and I face when we come to read about Jesus in the Christian scriptures. Without the right background in place, as we read about Jesus in the Gospels or the New Testament in general, it's a bit like watching an actor against a blue screen. You can see what he's doing, you can hear him speaking even, but without the background we'll often struggle to understand him rightly. And so today we're going to be looking at John 6, this sixth chapter of John the Apostle's eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry, death and resurrection. And Jesus is going to do amazing things in this chapter. He's going to miraculously feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread He's astoundingly going to come to his disciples when they're in the middle of a sea, a lake, in a boat. He's going to come to them walking on the water. And then he's going to say things that sound to our ears very weird indeed. Things about being the living bread that has come down from heaven, that if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you can have eternal life. Now what's the right background to slot in here so you can make sense of these things? Well, it turns out to be this great identity-defining deliverance, the exodus from Egypt. When you read what Jesus does and says against the exodus background, you start to realise just who he really is and the revolutionary nature of what he came to do. So just as we head into this, four details then about the exodus you need to keep in mind today as we look at this chapter. First of all, Moses, you can see them there on the outline, Moses, when the Lord God brought his people out of Egypt, he did it under the leadership of Moses. You can read about that in Exodus 3. Secondly, the Passover. In order to encourage Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, to let the Israelites go, the Lord God brought about a series of ten plagues, the last of which was the death of all firstborns. Now that was the climactic moment of this deliverance, when the angel of the Lord passed over, hence Passover, passed over the houses of the Israelites who'd taken a lamb, sacrificed it, spread its blood over the doorframe, cooked it and ate its flesh. That was the decisive moment in securing Israel's release 
And so it was commemorated and celebrated every year at the Lord's command as the Passover festival. Third thing you need to remember from the Exodus today is the sea. See, as the Israelites left Egypt, they were pursued by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And this time the Lord God delivered them by opening up a path through the sea. And then they walked through the Sea of Reeds, or sometimes called the Red Sea, and then the Lord closed it back upon the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. The fourth thing you need to know is about the food or manna. See, as the Lord God then led his people through the desert towards the Promised Land, they complained they had nothing to eat. So the Lord provided food for them. And this is what he said. I'm reading here from Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. You might like to just listen to this. And the Lord said to Moses... I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. So a couple of key things about this bread that was going to come down from heaven for them. First of all, there was plenty of it. The promise in Exodus 16.8 is that the Lord will give them all the bread you want. That's going to be significant. They were going to be filled with bread, we read there. Second thing is that it's called manna, which just means what is it? Because in Exodus 16... The first morning they came out and there's this stuff lying on the ground. They just looked at it and went, manna. Which is, what is it? And that's why it was called manna forever on after that. They just, that, what is it? The third thing you need to know about this manna is that it went off. Um, not in the sense of had a fantastic rage of a time. But <laughs> the manna would go off. It would, would spoil if you kept it through to the next day. If you kept it through to the next day, it would be smelly and full of maggots, we read. Okay. It was food, but it was food that spoiled, that perished. Now, there are the four details about the Exodus you need to keep in mind today. This great defining deliverance was under the leadership of Moses at the time of the Passover, through the sea, with the provision of manna bread from heaven. But there's two other aspects of the Exodus that are also important as part of the background behind what Jesus is doing and saying today. And the first is this, that the Exodus was a deliverance that provided a basis for hope. See, the start of Neighbours in 1985 may be, emphasis on may, be a great defining moment in Australia's history. But the Exodus was so much more than just a great event in the past for the Israelites. It was, a great, it was for them the example of the Lord God remembering his covenant that he'd made with them. It was a great example of the Lord remembering to save his people because of this promise, this covenant that he'd made. And so whenever in the future the Israelites were in trouble, they would look back to the Exodus and say, well, you remember there we were in, stuck in slavery in Egypt and the Lord God came and he rescued us in fulfilment of his promises and he saved us with that mighty deliverance. So if we're in trouble now, surely the Lord will be faithful to his promise like he was back in those days. So it formed it for them a basis for hope. You can see that in lots of places in the Old Testament and I'd like you to look one up with me, Psalm 77. The reason we're going to look up Psalm 77 is going to become significant as we work through the later part of John chapter 6. So you might like to turn it up there if you've got an Old Testament with you. Psalm 77. I want you to notice here as we just quickly look at this, how the Exodus is functioning as a basis for hope. You can see there in verse 1 that the psalmist is in need. 
He's crying out to God for help. And the particular problem seems to be that God's promises to Israel haven't come true. Look in verses 7 to 9. He says there, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? So then in verses 10 to 12, the psalmist resolves to remember what the Lord has done in the past as a way of comforting himself with God's past faithfulness. And he turns to the Exodus in verses 13 to 20. Now you can see he's talking about the Exodus because if you look in the very last verse, verse 20, he talks about them being under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And back in verse 14, he mentions the miracles done to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And particularly, he focuses on the sea, the deliverance through the sea in verses 16 to 19. Let me read that out to you. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. And your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen. The point I want to make here is that so you can see how the exodus and all that was associated with it was providing a basis for hope for this psalmist and for the nation of Israel whenever they found themselves outside the fulfilment of God's promises. And in Jesus' day, that was certainly true. Second thing you need to note here is that the Lord had made a promise that also provided a basis for hope. Now, Moses had been the great leader of God's people through the exodus period. And you can read about Moses' death in Exodus 34. And we're told that when Moses died, Joshua picked up the reins under the Lord to lead the Israelite nation. But we're told something very strange at the end of Deuteronomy 34, the very last part of Deuteronomy. This is what we're told. Let me just read it out to you. The writer writes, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So whenever Deuteronomy is written, the person writing is saying, no one has ever been a prophet like Moses, not Joshua who took the reins and no one ever since, no one has ever been there like Moses. But that's a very odd thing because actually through Moses himself, God had made a promise that one day he would bring a prophet like Moses. That's in Deuteronomy 18. And yet so there's the promise, one day the Lord will provide a prophet like Moses. And at the end of Deuteronomy you say, no one's ever come like Moses. So those two things together, they propel you forward. And so if you're an Israelite standing in the future, you go, well, God has promised one day to send this prophet. And think about the deliverance, the exodus, the mighty exodus that God worked through Moses. When the new prophet comes, surely the deliverance would be at least as grand as that. So the two things that are providing a basis for hope. One is just God's faithfulness to his covenant expressed through the exodus, that great deliverance. And secondly, the allied promise of the new prophet. Now there's all the background, we've filled it all in, and you're looking at the clock and you're going, my goodness, Rowan, how are we going to get through John 6, which is only 72 verses long? 
Well, it's taken a long time to fit in the background, but I want to say don't freak out. Remember the actor in front of the blue screen. It takes a long time to fill in all those special effects background, doesn't it? But once it's all done, you sit back and you just watch it in sort of real time, and it all happens very quickly, but it all makes perfect sense to you. So that's my hope now as we turn to John 6, that you're just going to sit back and you're going to go, okay, I'm getting all this, this is great. That's the goal here, okay? So let's turn together then to John 6. The first heading I've got there is Jesus the prophet. So as you turn up John 6 here, you'll notice the first things we're told by John, the eyewitness at the beginning of the chapter, is that there is a great crowd of people following Jesus because he's done these miraculous signs. That's in verse 2. And then we're told in verse 4 that it's near the Passover. Now already your newly tuned little Exodus antennas are wiggering vigorously, right? Because you're going, hang on, there's a guy, a leader, with a great crowd following him because he's done miraculous signs, right? That's what Moses did. And then it's near the Passover time, right? You're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm on board, I'm on board. Let's see then what happens. Jesus decides to feed this great crowd, numbering 5,000 men, so presumably many more by the time you add women and children. He does it, we're told, just with five small barley loaves and two small fish. The smallness is mentioned in both groups to emphasise, you know, it's not going to go far, folks, between 5,000 plus people, is it? But the amazing thing then, in verses 11 to 13, is what Jesus does. What happens? Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Jesus decides to feed this huge crowd. And what was familiar there? They all had as much as they wanted. Verse 11, just like the promise the Lord God had gave about the manna. They would have all the bread they want. That was Exodus 16.8. What's more, this is an overflowing of bread. This is just an abundant provision of bread. Twelve baskets full of leftover bits. That's what happens. What does it say about Jesus? Well, the crowd who are there come to their own conclusion. Have a look in verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That is, this is just like the manna in the desert, only greater, with, with an overabundance. This must be the prophet from Deuteronomy 18 that just, who's going to come like Moses, that God promised those centuries ago. That's the conclusion they make from what they've just witnessed. Well, were they right? Is that who Jesus is? Well, Jesus thinks they've got it right. Turn back to the end of chapter 5. It's one of those times when the chapter divisions are probably a bit unhelpful. The end of chapter 5, look what Jesus says in verse 46 to the Jews. He says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? 
Now, I think what's happening here is what Jesus then does in this miraculous feeding is strive to demonstrate, to prove to them that he is the one about whom Moses wrote. He's saying, you don't believe that I'm the one Moses wrote about? Well, watch what happens here. A miraculous feeding, bread from heaven. And they say the crowd come to the conclusion, surely this is the prophet. Well, you're going to see that pattern again and again in John's Gospel, that the miraculous signs Jesus does, they are performed by Jesus to point to his identity and to move people from unbelief to belief, from scepticism to trust, to move them from opposition to obedience. Well, I think that's what it means, what it says about Jesus, that he is this prophet to come into the world. What does it mean then? Well, if Jesus really is the prophet to come into the world, that is very exciting news. So you imagine you were there on that day as part of the crowd. It's near Passover, the time where you're, you're so consciously aware of the great deliverance that God brought at the Exodus. Here's the new prophet like Moses that God had promised. What does that mean? It means surely deliverance is now at hand. And hey, there were certainly problems that needed writing. What about the occupying Roman forces that had control of God's people? Surely now's the time that a new leader like Moses would come and we'd have a new rising up and we'd be delivered from these oppressive Romans just like from the Egypt. You can see how it's all going in their minds. And so what do they do in verse 15? What do they do? They try to make Jesus king by force. And so Jesus withdraws to a nearby mountain to escape. See, why does he try to escape? Because they've made a mistake. They've got it right about his identity, but they've got God's agenda wrong. The mistake the crowd make is thinking that Jesus' kingdom is going to be an earthly one. See, later on in John's Gospel, John will recount for us an interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, who was the ruling Roman governor, before whom Jesus was on trial for his life. And Pilate asks Jesus if he's king of the Jews. And Jesus answers, this is John 18, 36, I'll read it out to you. Jesus replies, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, you say I'm a king, and for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. That is, Jesus' kingdom is not this worldly. And so the deliverance he will bring will first and foremost not be against the physical oppressors like the Egyptians or the Romans. God is actually going to effect a greater deliverance through Jesus. What will that deliverance be? Well, you have to wait as we work through the rest of chapter 6. So second heading there, Jesus, so much more. See, if we'd been reading right through John's account of Jesus, we'd know that Jesus is, in fact, much more than just the prophet who is going to replace Moses. Even though if you or I were to be the prophet to replace Moses, that would be a pretty exalted calling. But Jesus is so much more than that. We know even from the opening section of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, That Jesus is, in fact, the one true God become flesh. He's God, the one-of-a-kind Son, incarnate, fully God, fully human. And that is what this next little bit of John 6, the walking on the water, I think points to. 
But again, the consistent background here against which that becomes apparent is the Exodus. So what happens here? Well, it's the same day. It's that evening after the miraculous feeding. The disciples head out by boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And in the darkness, as they struggle against the strong wind and the rough seas, we read, they've rowed about three, three and a half miles. Astoundingly, they see Jesus approaching them, walking on the water. Chapter 6, verse 19. Now, how would you respond if you saw someone you thought you knew reasonably well walking to you on water in the middle of a fairly large, you know, this is not like a little baby's pool that you sort of run up and sort of, you've not tried that to walk on water? Anyway, you know, he's, they're on a big stretch of water, right? And there's Jesus walking on the water, and they go, ha, cool trick, Jesus. No, no, no. They're freaked out. They're absolutely terrified. What's going on here? And Jesus' response to is to say, literally, I am, don't be afraid. Verse 20 there. Well, that's what happens. What does it say about Jesus? Well, Jesus says, when Jesus says, I am, it's a phrase that's a bit ambiguous. It can just be a way of saying, hey, it's me, which is why the NIV has translated it, it is I. But it's also a Greek rendering of the name for the Lord God, the name that the Lord God revealed to Moses of himself. And you can chase that up in Exodus 3, verse 13 to 15. And certainly at other times in John's story about Jesus' ministry, Jesus does sometimes explicitly use this phrase, I am, to indicate his divine identity, to indicate that he is the Lord. So, for instance, John chapter 8, verse 58 and 59 And so I think as readers who reflect upon all that John records for us in this Gospel, we are meant to hear the divine significance of Jesus saying, whilst walking on the water, I am, don't be afraid. Now it fits with what we know, as I said, about Jesus from elsewhere in the Gospel, but the second reason I think is because in the Exodus, it is God himself who cuts a path through the waters. Do you remember when we read Psalm 77? Let me remind you what we read in that psalm in verse 19. The psalmist said, Your path, O God, has led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. It's God who cut a path, who walked through the waters. Or elsewhere in Job 9.8, we're told that he, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So I think the indication is here and he's walking on the water in what he says, I am, don't be afraid, and against that Exodus background, walking on the water, Jesus is so much more than just the prophet to replace Moses. Here is more reflection in John's account of Jesus' life that Jesus is God incarnate. So yes, a great deliverance is afoot. Yes, the new prophet leader like Moses is here, but this time it is the Lord God himself who's come to save in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. What does it mean? I think what it points to is the fact that this deliverance that is coming in Jesus is even greater than what the Lord God achieved through Moses. This deliverance, if you like, isn't going to be, oh, if only it would be a little bit like the Exodus, how great that was. No, it's the other way around. The Exodus is but a shadow of the great deliverance that God is now going to affect. The Romans? No, no, there's bigger fish to fry. What's the great deliverance that God's going to work? Well, we come to that as we come to the last section of the chapter. Jesus, the bread of life. What's the great 
deliverance, we learn in this extended discourse from verses 25 through to 71, the great deliverance is from death itself. Forget the Egyptians, forget the Romans. The Lord is taking on death through Jesus. Let's have a look at here what Jesus offers to make sense of this. What Jesus offers is not manna that goes off. He offers food that produces eternal life. Look in verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes or spoils, but for the food that endures for eternal life. Bit of a play on meaning there. The manna given through Moses spoilt or perished, as we said before, when it was kept the next day. Jesus is not saying, hey, the food I'll give you, you put it in the cupboard, it'll be there forever. It'll never go off. No, he's actually saying, the food I will give you, it will produce eternal life when you eat of it. That this is the great thing Jesus is offering is just reflected right throughout this chapter. It's called eternal life uh, three times, I think. It's called everlasting life once. It's called not dying once. It's called living forever once. It's called being raised up at the last day four times. The whole passage, if I can put it this way, is alive with life. This is what Jesus is offering. Not bread, but life. Eternal life. Life that overwhelms death. Life that outlives death. Life that endures beyond death. That's what Jesus offers. So what's the food that Jesus can give you so you can live forever? What's this supermanner from heaven that will give you enduring life? Life to the whole world. I mean, if I could give you food that would help you live forever, would you want it? Well, you might say, frankly, not in this creation. But in the context of God fulfilling all of his promises, in the promise of not this fallen creation, but God making all things right, in a perfect world, with perfect relationship, who wouldn't want to live forever? And so the crowd say in verse 34, Sir, from now on give us this bread. Forget the stuff you've just produced out of the barley loaves. My goodness, give us this bread. And what does Jesus say in verse 35? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus himself is the bread from heaven. He's the bread that gives eternal life. It's there in uh, verse 35, again in verse 48, again in 57. Then Jesus gets even more specific in verse 51. See, what is it about Jesus that will help you live forever? You come to Jesus, yep, and he'll, he'll give you eternal life. What's he going to actually give you? Well, the answer is he gives you his own death. Verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, as we saw before. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus' own physical body is the key. He's going to give his body for the life of the world and he will do that on the cross. And he fills it out even more there in 53 to 55, which you can read a bit later. So what Jesus is offering here is his own death. And you might remember that earlier John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus and he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is, here is the true Passover Lamb. Remember the Passover Lamb that they sacrificed, smeared its blood over the doorframe and then ate its flesh? Jesus is the true Passover lamb. It was his shed blood 
that would atone for the sins of the world. It was his destroyed body that would give life to a death-bound world. Now, we're all pretty comfortable living in Australia, is my guess. How much food do you reckon you would eat in a lifetime? I don't know why I think of these questions, how much food would I eat in a lifetime? But one of the great things now is when you think of weird questions, we've been provided with the World Wide Web, which answers every weird question you can think of. So I went to Google and I typed in food, lifetime, eat, and up came a website that answered my question. I know now you're very interested to know, I'm sure, I'll just at least pretend that's the case. You will drink, apparently, if you live an average sort of life in the comfortable Western world, you will drink 45,300 litres of water. 45,000 litres of water. That didn't actually sound like very much to me. And then I did a bit of a calculation, you know, times it by this, divided by that, and I worked out it's about seven or eight cups a day. And I thought, oh, that's probably how they worked it out, actually, isn't it? <laughs> um, I doubt they counted it up. One, two, anyway. Apparently you will eat in your lifetime, and you'll enjoy this, 2,300 kilos of fat. Mmm. 8,000 kilos of carbohydrates. 1,900 kilos of protein, which the Feed the Man meat, sort of, you know, the butcher campaign is trying to lift a bit, I guess. Now, what I want you to do is imagine for a moment that you had all your food for your lifetime stockpiled in front of you. There it all is. You have 45,000 litres of water, your 2,300 kilos of fat, 8,000 kilos of carbs, which is quite a bit of pasta, and it's all part of, you've got it all there stockpiled. Good. And next to you is Ryan Smart, and he stockpiled his lot, and then I'm next to you and I stockpiled. We all line up all going to have a big pile. And then we eat it. All of it. I mean, some of us probably eat a bit too quickly. But other of us, you know, just a little bit each day. But you know what? It doesn't matter how fast or slow you eat it. In the end, you will die. Oh, hang on. Let's double the amount so you can live on for it. It doesn't matter, mate. It doesn't matter how much more food I pile there. In the end, you will die. Because that food will not produce eternal life. Well, what food could I give you that will kick me on beyond death? It will kick me up to that next level of existence that I have everlasting life. Surely there's something. Jesus is the answer. Jesus' death is the answer. That's what you need. That's the food that will produce eternal life. Well, if that's the great food that will bring about eternal life... You've got to ask the question, how do I eat it? How do I partake of it? How do I grab hold of it and consume it that I might have this life? Well, the answer is there in the passage. Throughout the passage, there are responses to Jesus that are sort of in parallel. I've written them down there on your outline so you can see it there. Sometimes it's talked about as coming to Jesus. Other times it's talked about as eating his flesh. Other times it's talked about as believing in him or his words. So, for instance, verse 35, try to follow this through with me. Verse 35, Jesus says, He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Coming to Jesus and believing in him are paralleled, right? That's what it is to come to Jesus, to believe in him. Or compare verse 40 with verse 54, and you'll see that 
seeing Jesus, seeing the Son and believing in him is exactly parallel with eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? It's not talking about any church ritual. It's talking in this passage about believing in him. That's how you partake of Jesus, the bread of heaven. You believe in him. And it's tied down a little, little bit more tightly in verses 63 to 64 to specifically believing in his words, believing in him and his words. So that's the concrete way that we partake of Jesus, the bread of life. That's the way we appropriate for ourselves this great deliverance, this deliverance from death itself, by trusting in Jesus, by believing in him, by submitting to his words in our life. You know, people will go on to all sorts of extremes to try to live forever. Cryogenics is the science, and you need air quotes around that one, of freezing bodies before death so that at some indeterminate time in the future they can thaw you out and give you new life. And it's premised on the hope, which is far from certain, that in the future we will develop technologies that A, can thaw you out without destroying all your cells in the process, B, have worked out how to reverse whatever it was that was killing you in the first place, and C, work out how to then, once you're alive and sort of fixed, that you can then live on forever, because otherwise we're just going to go through the whole messy process all over again. Now, it's a fairly serious effort, and I mean serious. This, this is serious, that people do this to try to live forever. And the cost, of course, to freeze a whole body is exorbitant. So some companies now offer to just freeze your head. Right? Because after all, if they can do all the other things, then surely in the future they'll be able to grow you a new body or at least give you a pretty good artificial one. Well, the cost of freezing your head? $10,000. That's US, of course. Now, just think about it. Does it really surprise you that God has a better plan? I mean, really? Cryogenics? That's the best there is? No, if God made us in the first place, he can surely do whatever is necessary to grant us eternal life. He can, and the great news for this world is that he has. He's done it in Jesus. Well, faced with the offer of eternal life, I wonder how you would expect people to respond. They started by saying, Jesus, give us this bread always. And then when he explained what the bread was, that it's himself, and how you partake of it, that you had to believe in him and trust him, you know what they did? You can read it there in verse 66. They turned around, they turned away and stopped following him. They complained that his teaching was hard. Not hard to understand. They knew what he was saying. It's just hard to accept. Hard to agree with. But the great tragedy, of course, is that there are no other ways to eternal life. And some of Jesus' followers realise this, and so I'll finish by reading these last two verses. It's the great summing up, really, of everything we've seen in this chapter. Sums up Jesus' identity, sums up his great gift. So Jesus asked the 12, verse 67, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. There's his identity, the Holy One of God. There's his gift. Eternal life, deliverance from this slavery to death through the gift of his own self, now available to all who believe. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for all the good things that you give us. 
We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him you have given us the gracious gift of eternal life through faith. We pray, Father, that you might help us to accept him, to come to him, to partake of his death through faith, that under your gracious hand we might live forever with you in the new creation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.